Hello, and welcome to Awesome Leaders, Lessons for Food Business Success, a podcast aimed at supporting the development and growth of women-owned food and beverage processing businesses in the Canadian prairies. Our guests include industry experts, as well as food and beverage entrepreneurs to provide knowledge, real-world examples, and inspiration. My name is Carly, and on behalf of the Awesome Program, I'll be your host today. This is a special episode as we will be sharing a live panel discussion put on by Awesome at the Empowering Women's Conference that took place at Canada's Farm Show in Regina. Canada's Farm Show held their fourth annual Empowering Women's Conference presented by Farm Credit Canada on June 22, 2022. The Empowering Women's Conference is for all women who want to enhance their family life, community, career, and industry. We are very excited to be invited to host the Awesome Food Founders Panel. Enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone. What a pleasure it is to be here. I was driving down from Saskatoon this morning and thinking about what does empowering women in agriculture mean? And when I go back in my career of of agriculture, so I've been involved in, in the industry for over 40 years. I have lived agriculture for nearly 60 years, so that puts me in the position that I can actually talk about this. And when I think about, I think about farmers and I think about women in agriculture, and the first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is a farm wife, right? And so why were we called the farm wives and not the farmers? Because we could drive the tractor, the trailer, the truck, the, the combine, the swather, the baler, the, everything that they could, there are many of you out there that can, can do absolutely everything from, you know, moving the herd to needling calves to tagging pigs to the whole works of it. And so I was trying to think, why was there always that separation? And in my mind, it came down to one thing. Who made the decisions? The decision maker is actually the person with the power. And so by empowering women, we move them more into the decision-making role. And that's what I think is really, really important. And to have a support group that I see out here is fantastic. It's absolutely wonderful to have this group of women out here supporting other women in agriculture. So that is excellent. The other place that uh, recognized that women needed support was the Saskatchewan Food Industry Development Center. They're uh, an organization that helped entrepreneurs or people with a great food idea bring it to life. And so what they have done is they have created the awesome program, is what they call it. And what it does is it provides tailored technical and business development assistance through one-on-one and group education services. So awesome is uh, an organizer, is a, uh, is a program, I guess, is what it is that has come together to help new entrepreneurs, new people with food ideas, take it to the next level. And today we're going to be hearing from three of the participants of the awesome program, and you are going to be amazed at what they do and where they're headed. So awesome is actually supported by Prairies Canada, the government of Canada, through the Women Entrepreneurship Strategy Ecosystem Fund. It's a good thing I had to read that because I couldn't keep it uh, all together here. Um, And today's event for this uh, panel and for the speaker coming up is sponsored by FCC. And FCC has really stepped up and become part of, uh, they've helped out in certain aspects of the awesome program. They're helping out in things like this. I know that there's advisors out there that'll be very interested to talk to women and anybody that's interested in, in talking finance. Those guys are professionals and they know what they do. So without further ado, it is my pleasure today to introduce our panel, and I'm going to start with Lindsay Bolio, who is the founder of I Love Microgreens. We have Shakira Idoho, the founder of Atari Foods, and Erin Kernaligan, who is the co-founder of Living Sky Farms. And they're going to tell you about this story of empowerment and how they become to be the decision makers and how much fun it is along the way. So welcome our panel. Uh, hello, bonjour, Tanse. My name is Lindsay. I am Métis. So I am the co-founder of I Love Microgreens Urban Farm and Eatery. I like to, to show my platform is that I am an Indigenous-owned company. 
Um, so we are an urban farm located in Red Deer, Alberta. We're also turned into an eatery, so I have my own kitchen and commercial kitchen where I use my microgreens to make salads, dressings, bowls, and, and more. So um, we started in uh, four years ago, and my journey started working on an organic field vegetable farm working with CSA, which is Community Supported Agriculture Subscription Boxes. Uh, so when I've, I've worked on there for about four years, learning everything about growing vegetables, harvesting, weeding, <laughs> everything. And that turned into my love for farming, but I didn't have any land. So my first thought was, let's find out how we can urban farm. <laughs> so I, we found a place to start our farm, so it's under shelving, LED lights, we grow microgreens, we grow up to 15 di different varieties. With that, uh, my journey went from, it started also as a grief recovery, so I lost my father to suicide, so a lot of our company brings back into our, into Red Deer, we give back to our um, mental health by, and it gives me a platform to speak about mental health to other people. So we grew from a small little farm to a commercial kitchen in a year-round farmer's market located in Gasoline Alley Market. And there I create all different kinds of salads. I make a charcuterie board salad, which is my top seller, two chef salads, and all of my salads are used from local Albertan um, vegetables, my microgreens, all the chickens, the eggs, everything is locally produced. So I think that gives that freshness to people, and people aren't used to that. And so they're like, this is so delicious. So I've turned a lot of people that are meat and potato <laughs> into salad people. So I'm making salads interesting again. Yeah. Excellent. And where do you sell? So I sell to a lot of specialty organic um, grocery stores in Red Deer, a lot of high-end restaurants will take my microgreens. As well, I sell at the majority of my microgreens and salads, I sell through myself at a, my own brick-and-mortar store at the Gasoline Alley Market. So, yeah. Good. And how big is your team? Right now, it's just the family. So it's my husband and I and my kids. So we all, we are actually looking to start expanding because this last year, we've grown so much. We just recently got um, a grant through um, Métis um, Alberta to upgrade our technology at our farm. So we have newer grow lights, a bigger space, um, and I just have so many more ideas that I am constantly changing because you, I think as an entrepreneur, you constantly have to adapt with your environment. And in Red Deer, microgreens weren't a huge seller, so that's why I got into the salads to introduce people into them. And that's, I think, where our success comes from. So. Excellent. Thank you very much, Lindsay. That's Lindsay's operation. I love microgreens. Um, thank you so much, everyone. My name is Shakira Dohom. I am the founder of Atari Foods. And Atari Foods has two business sites. So we have a service side and we have a product side. And the service side of our business is what, where we started. And um, in growing that business, a significant part of it has been growing on social media. So we started that business about two, three years ago. And in that time, we've been able to reach over 100,000 customers. We have also been able to go into about 80 different countries. And most of the work that we do is around creating a brand on social media and leveraging that social presence to convert the people that follow us into customers. So um, a significant part of, of what we do is just looking for ways to minimize our marketing spend. So right now we're actually about 30X less uh, than industry standard in customer acquisition. And that is because we're able to do that by knowing our customers and being able to you know, interact with them and give them what they want. So we're constantly using their feedback in order to create new product and grow. And we have a really significant audience of testers. So we usually don't have to pay for that, which is significant for us. And the product side of our business, uh, we use West African inspired um, flavors to build food for the prairie market. Our food is West African inspired, but it's definitely for everyone. 
And as a side to that, I'm also a food blogger. So outside of the two jobs that I do, I also food blog on the side. So that's me. All right. And so tell me a little bit more about like how big is your team and how, how did you get started in the business? Hey, so I actually, uh, in terms of like food blogging, I started when I was in university because there was nothing else to do with my time. Reading was boring, so I thought I could... I oh, do to have time. <laughs> I would do food blogging on the side. But honestly, I think I started because I felt like there was an opportunity for me to kind of like introduce new people to the food cultures that I grew up with. I moved to Prairie's when I was 18, and there was a lot of like Prairie Gum products that most of you probably know I exported out into places like Asia and Africa. So I had interactions with Prairie-grown peas and pauses and things like that already. So it was very interesting to kind of see them, how they're grown, and be able to kind of like educate on both sides using that so that's kind of where I started my journey and then uh, from food blogging I realized that you know people were looking for a certain type of information and that is how we created our service-based brand so our service-based brand actually helps people uh, with the dietary modifications for lifestyle related diseases uh, we all know that most of what we are is about what we eat and what we put in our body. So what we do is just look at what can we possibly do better, um, you know, to get our med med medications when it comes to lifestyle diseases like type 2 diabetes or somebody p being pre-diabetic. Uh, so food is a significant part of healthcare as far as we're concerned, and we just look for ways to help people just be better with food. Um, yeah, I think I've maybe answered your question or not. I don't know. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, my team is very small. My husband is kind of like the chief everything doer. Everything that I don't want to do, I just ask my husband to help. Even though I am the CEO, he does everything else. Um, so my team is very small. We use a lot of like Upwork, which is like contract workers when we're looking for talents that we don't have in-house. And we're able to leverage uh, summer students as well. So we'll hire summer students who are in marketing, who are in film, and things like that through my tax, which is a great program. Check it out if you need summer student help. Yeah. So that's pretty much what, how we've been able to grow. Excellent, excellent. Let's hear from Erin. Thank you, Shakira. All right, I'm Erin Cornelligan, um, co-founder of Living Sky Farm. So we do stone milled uh, flour and whole grains. Uh, that's where we started. It was um, Sarah and I, it was a kitchen table idea. She has a, an old mill from her grandma. So they grew up on the grain farm. And so for her, it was just always go get the grains, mill it in their kitchen, and make bread, make cookies, make everything with it, with the whole kernel. And I was blown away by this because I did not grow up on the farm, and I'm more on the animal side now. So this was like, okay, so we can have all of the food things between, um, I, I dairy farm with my husband, and then... Sarah's got her milk cow, we've got the pigs, we've got like the chickens, we have worms for composting, like we just loved everything. So to add the grain side of it just seemed like a really exciting opportunity. So we just started talking about it and decided to do it. The goal was to start it by her 30th birthday. Um, so we kind of had everything going, that was March of 2020. COVID changed things a little bit in terms of what we could do just because packaging all of the different things that started to affect a lot of us happened. So we just decided we don't need the real packaging. We can just do like Dymo printed labels and we can have um, like paper bags for your lunches. So we, that's where like we're doing it anyways. So we just started, we started milling um, and from there it just kind of grown. So Sarah's family farm has they're a seed operation as well, so we had the ability to have the access to the grains that were already food grade uh, cleaned. So they were shipping a lot of their stuff to Japan. So their, their barley, one of their major markets is Japan because it's a high beta-glucan. And their spelt was Germany loves spelt, I guess, and their golden flax. So we thought, okay, so why don't we get to eat all this good stuff that these other countries are really enjoying? So our offerings to start are red and white wheat. Um, we've got the barley. We do that flaked or flour. Spelt, which that is my favorite. I essentially only cook with that now that I've been introduced to it. Um, and then oats. And the first year we actually outsourced the oats from a neighbor just because they weren't growing the hollis variety we need. Um, with the oats, just like a side thing, uh, they have a shorter lifespan, so once they're dehulled, they start to go rancid a lot faster. So the hollis variety 
gives us a little bit more of that length because we don't steam them. So we just flake them raw, and so they have a lot more flavor and a lot more texture to them when you eat them. So like a bowl of oatmeal is like a whole different game changer for those who think oatmeal's boring. My opinion again, but I love oatmeal. Um, so we were able to outsource that for the first year, and then last year we were able to grow our own. So we're just trying to keep a lot of that within that dynamic. And then a year after we started, we had the opportunity. Um, and like, you know, when you have a partner that's like, you can be like, yes girls. So we're like the yes girls to each other, which can be good and bad because then, you know, you jump for things and then hope we can like swim after ourselves and our decisions. So we bought a soup company. So there was, it was another Saskatchewan-based dry soup mix company that had been around for a while and they were wanting to get out of it. And someone was like, you girls, you should do this. And we're like, okay. We'll do it. So we bought the soup company, um, and then we figured out what we needed to do afterwards because we had never had a soup business before. But we thought because um, barley lentil soup, we can use our barley thickener agent. We use our white wheat in it, so we we're able to use a lot of the pieces that we were already doing in an end product for those who are not ready to bake their own bread, for example. So. Um, the biggest thing with that was we realized that there's still so much processed food um, and ingredients in those soups. And that was just something that we believe in wholesome, homemade, homegrown. And so it took some time to redevelop them and redesign them. So Sarah did a lot, a lot of cooking in the kitchen. We used her kids, like her kids were like the number one of like, okay, try this. Because they'll tell you one way or the other if it's like to whatever it is. So we launched, we've got a potato dill a barley lentil, an alphabet soup, which has our barley in it, and uh, we did add red lentils to it, so that one is a complete protein for, um, for people who are vegetarians, that's a good option, and then a beetroot soup. So the potato dill seems to be our most popular one, and then the barley lentils like a little afterwards. So that's been kind of an exciting piece of it, and um, yeah. Good, so good, there. okay. So. <laughs> There's you and Sarah that are in this business. Is there, do you have employees or is this just you and her and, and all the time that you can take? It's just her and I, and I would say our husbands have been very great helps. Um, some of the heavy lifting, for example, in the winter time to try to get to a bin if we need to refill our greens or something like that. Uh, I was pregnant last year, so Sarah did like, we were counting when we were kind of doing up our books, it was like, she hauled that much grain on her own because I couldn't lift the pails. <laughs> so, yeah, but that, yeah, it's the two of us essentially. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So, the next question that I've got here for you is there are plenty of challenges in all of these businesses. And uh, one that I'm going to ask you about, Erin, but uh, I'd like you to, to uh, speak to, your, to whatever one you want to bring up is how do you... Over, what are the challenges and how do you overcome them? But the first one I want to ask is, obviously you're not using those paper bags for your soup. So how did you settle, or how, how, what did you do for containers? Right, so I mean, everything has kind of started to calm down. So we did find a supplier that most of their stuff, they're based out of Toronto. Um, and again, we really wanted to look at not as much plastic and everything like that. So we've got our paper, paper bags. So, we really just started sourcing it. Sarah's a very good eye for the, like she's the creative side of it. She, she did our branding. She's just like, she's an amazing creative. And so she was able to, you know, with our colors, we, we knew how that, we wanted that to look on the soups. We wanted to have that, all those different pieces. So we just kept trying different ones, getting things sent to us. And we just came up with the one that we're really happy with. So we were lucky that we've now been able to keep that source steady. Um, but I guess we always know, I mean, I guess that kind of goes into one of the challenges on, on the financial end. So this was a side hustle for us. Like, like I said, this was like, she, Sarah's got three kids. I was still working, she was still working on the farm. So we just started it kind of quite relaxed. So we didn't want to go into extreme debt over it. So we both put, pooled a little bit in because we needed to get the mill, we needed to get the packaging but we really wanted to try to have our growth be very organic with what we had available to us. So, you know, the first little while you're like, okay, I know I can get these bags for seven cents a bag, 
but then we'd have to spend like $2,000 to get that. We don't have that. So we'll spend the 15 cents per bag and only get so many. But knowing our margins, we were able to kind of slowly, gradually get that bigger. So we've been in a position now that we can do some bulk buying, but that's just been very much knowing our numbers. That's been extreme is trying to make sure we know the numbers and just being prepared that sometimes the growth isn't as fast as what either outside people think it should be, or sometimes your own expectations of like knowing that balance. Um, and then my other challenge I think that we're finding, I'm gonna use the oats as the example. So we got to plant our own oats last year by we, I, the, Sarah's, the farm did for us. And it was a drought year. So we put in a bunch of our added seed into the field thinking that we would be good. So we had a, a lower volume to get us through. And then um, we did get a pretty good yield on them. So we were happy with what we were able to get, but they're different this year. So when we think of like, when we flake them, because we don't steam them. So a lot of the time, so what you see in the store, which is consistent is they steam them. It gives them a longer shelf life, but a longer shelf life then sometimes means um, you lose nutrients. So instead for us, we just go for it and tell people to put it in the freezers if they're not gonna use it fast enough. Um, but they're drier. And so when we flake them, we used to have like these beautiful flaked oats. And now they're just like a little bit more um, powdery because they just don't flake the same way because of the growing conditions. So I'm sure a lot of you can understand the ups and downs of that. But when you're doing that direct side of it, it's now how do you let the consumer know that it's not a lesser quality product per se, it still has that nutrient content, but it doesn't look as good. Or you might have to cook it a little less time than you did before. So that's been a big challenge for us and hoping that we can just continue to educate people who aren't familiar with that, those changes, that it's still worth a whole food, even though there's like a, a, some changes in your kitchen you have to make. Very good, very good. Shakira. Um, so I, I would say that the biggest thing is, uh, I'm an accountant, so I apologize, but <laughs> it used to be that your cost of goods were predictable. It was fixed and it was fixed for an extended period of time, so an extended period of your contract. With COVID, you were in Ukraine, supply chain crisis. I think everybody knows and understands now that the cost of goods are like up and down and well, up and up for the most part, so they're not, no longer as predictable. What we found is that that is leading to certain customer trust erosion. Because uh, as long as a lot of people understand that the cost of things are going up, there are also people who think that companies are just taking advantage and they're using opportunity to raise prices. So I, I think um, a good avenue that we've been able to channel and might be useful for a lot of people is to educate your customers constantly on the things that go into your product. Because if they understand that, you know, these are the 16 components that you use and the prices are going up and you're not as shocked or you're not as mistrusting of your price increases. And it's also easier on the customer when you're the first person to tell them, it's not the first time they go into the store to buy your products that you know, they're seeing that the price has gone up 14% today and then another like 20% tomorrow. So I would say that you know, one of the biggest challenges is just that flick flexibility in the cost of goods and just constantly communicating to your customer that you know, Prices are going up, sorry. They're going up again, sorry. But um, yeah, I think a lot of people are more receptive to price increases when they understand and they've come to expect it. How do you let them know that the price is going up and why? Like, is it a face-to-face -face conversation? Is it a post somewhere? What's your strategy for letting them know? So I would say that the very useful thing to do in the internet age is to have an email list. So somehow try as much as possible to build an email list of your customers. So you could be with a QR code on your product via social media page, doing some sort of giveaway where you legally can collect emails. So I think when you have um, a robust list of people that use your product, you're able to message to them directly with your social media pages as well. You're able to message to them directly. But I find that, you know, sending email campaigns or even like video sharing and things like that in just your check-ins is a very, very good way for you to be able to communicate to your customers directly because it's a lot more difficult to do it on the store level. Very good. Lindsay. For myself, when we grew our farm to another, our next level, um, 
I actually share a space with another Be Awesome um, cohort. She was from cohort two. Um, so we share a space together and that helps us reduce our costs um, for rentals. So, because we're both trying to get into, she's trying to get her product across to Saskatchewan and to BC. So I think um, being able to create those communities, creating um, partnerships with each other, um, with fellow farmers, fellow food, food producers. Um, I also uh, work with a CSA um, program with, there's about 10 of us farmers in, in Red Deer, so we all kind of collectively work. So we all bring our products to one spot. We have one website to, that our customers can order from. So that lowers my risk of like finding more customers um, and the, the logistics of the gas and everything to get my product just to one spot, not to deliver it off to hundreds of places. So I, I encourage everyone to, instead of being competitive with each other, to look at what we can do to form those partnerships with each other. And so that's a few things that I've done. <laughs> that's excellent because I think that there's more to that partnership than just sharing space and sharing costs. Mm -hmm. You can also, there's another sounding board to bounce ideas off of. Yes. It's another person that says, yes, you're doing a good job, keep it up. It's a little bit of that uh, yeah. motivation that also comes with it. Uh, and I, I take it yeah. you agree. <laughs> oh, I totally. Like, um, there's a lot of days where, like, for instance, two weeks ago, we lost about 20 trays of our one of our is a brassica blend, um, microgreen. And at first you're just like, oh, that sucks. But then you have that other person, that other female entrepreneur that's there to be like, you know what, you're gonna get through this and you're gonna be okay. And you just gotta keep going. So it's not only a financial business thing, it's uh, just empowering, just like what we're doing here, um, just being together. and. I find females just have that, I don't know, you have that power to each other that we know what we're going through. You know what you're thinking because we often start to diminish ourselves um, more so. I don't know if men just don't have that. <laughs> I don't know. But we, I think we just constantly question ourselves. So. I think I find it interesting that whenever we get together as women, we, we almost sometimes come up with a, an excuse like, oh, we just need to get together and we need to talk and everything else. How many old boys clubs have there been forever, right? And that's exactly what they do. And it's just that now that we're starting to do it, it it's, uh, you know, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I shouldn't vent and stuff. But nobody else understands that I need hairspray to keep this up. You know, I need to, you know, I need mascara. I, if I'm going to go work the tractor, I don't care if I want to put makeup on or not. You know, like that's... Uh, that's something that the guys just don't get sometimes. And that's, I think that's what's nice about having a, an entire community around you is that everybody here gets it. You know, you don't have to explain it to anybody. But let's carry on here with the panelists. Lindsay, as an urban farmer, what do you see as the potential for your model that you've started here? You know, given food insecurity, supply issues, do you think that there's a lot of potential for this to grow? Uh, where are we at? Yeah, so when I started, we only invested $1,000 into our operation, and we slowly grew. Um, I, I, I believe that this is something that we can get more fresh food, more nutritional value. Um, if we have, because I can't feed 100,000 people, I need other microgreen farmers out there too. So. But like being a part of a community, we can feed our community rather than import, like not that I'm against importing anything, but I really value local food. And that's from my working on organic farms and knowing that transportation, it does diminish your nutritional value. So if we can get, you can have a lower transport of food that's way better for all of us. <laughs> yeah. We're going to pass that on to Shakira. So Shakira, along the same vein, you're doing something quite similar. You know, do you see potential in this, 
you know, in this model that this could be something that can be expanded? Or do you see that like someone like yourself can expand or is it an expansion of many different people? Uh, well, I, I think it's both, right? I think that the skill set that you bring to your business often is what you're really good at. But I think to grow extensively, then you're going to have to look for experts in other areas. So sometimes, you know, you have to like grow your team and look for expertise elsewhere. But I think when it comes to like the core aspect of your business, you know, the vision, uh, where you want it to go, how you want it to grow, that will always be you. But there are things that you probably not be able to do uh, by yourself. So it's always good to kind of like leverage other people's strengths. Okay. And so you are a very successful food blogger. Like for those of you that are not aware, uh, Shakira has 331,000 followers on Instagram. Yes. And that was last night, so it's probably higher now. And so uh, the question to you then is, as a successful food blogger, what are the main social media tips that you might have for a food-based brand? So I, I think a lot of us tend to think that, you know, we have to find something special to share. Every single thing you do as a part of your business is content. You don't have to go look out for something special. I want to see a tractor on somebody's page. I want to know how they start their tractors every day. I want to know how they get on uh, to the tractor. I want to know how they plant, how they harvest, what stages of crops things are in. I'm interested in that because I don't know that. And I think that as business owners, we tend to think, well, it needs to be pretty, it needs to be interesting, it needs to be something new. Um, every single thing that you do is interesting to somebody, so just share it. I, I think that would be the first thing. And the second thing would be that when you're looking at influencers to help you, because a lot of us, you know, we have marketing spend, we go to influencers. An influencer is not a sales rep. An influencer is not going to sell your product the way you're going to sell your product. So I want people to think about influencers as people with social capital. Look for influencers that have social capital in the sector that you're in and try to tap into that social capital that they have. So do they have trust in a certain age group or audience? How do you go to them to leverage some of the trust that they have in that age group? Not how do you, how do you go to them to help you sell your product? Because, you know, that is just like a short-term thing. But if you're able to tap into the social capital, then that marketing spend just keeps working for you over an extended period of time. Good, good, good. I'll keep that in mind. Erin, the question for you that, they've, uh, that we would like to find out is, as a co-founder, you are working in an industry where you're value-adding, and you've got, uh, I guess the question is, is that what's it like working with a partner, and what's it like being in value-added in Saskatchewan? Because that is probably something that I'm going to admit I've heard oh, yes, we should be value-adding. Like, I probably heard this when I was Aaron's age. And now I'm still hearing it, and it's very frustrating. But now we've got people that are actually doing it. So what's it like doing value-added in Saskatchewan? Yeah, an Alberta girl getting asked that question. <laughs> um, there's a lot of different dynamics to that, I think, because essentially Living Sky Farms is a value added to Sarah's family farm. So it's like an extra complication to add in a friend or an extra person because I'm sure you know that it's a little different if you're, you know, your parents, how they want to help you versus, an outside, you know, somebody else. And so we've really had to have some of those big conversations right at the start. So I think the positive about the dynamic that we have is we had to have those business conversations because it's like Sarah's, yeah, Sarah's parents, they, I'm not gonna go and ask them for something just directly or anything. So we had to make that business plan. So we, we went to them with what we kind of wanted to do, what we wanted the grains to understand what capacity we were able to get from them, but also know what our costs were associated with it. So we really tried to create it as it's, it is its own, but we really needed to make sure it was that because, of, because I was also involved in it. So that allowed us to get, you know, get some things structured right off the bat. It allowed us to understand our numbers a little bit better instead of just like, let's go for this. Um, 
And as far as the value add, I mean, also on our farm, we do a lot of value add sided uh, pieces of it. We do all of our, uh, our beef direct and everything. So we've had, it's nice to get a few different examples or different ideas because then we share within the different diverse pieces of our, our sales. Um, but I think the biggest thing is I didn't come from the egg background. So I just asked the hard business questions. And so that was one of those. And then Sarah has the knowledge. So we really, really complement each other on our skill set. And I think to always remember that, because sometimes, you know, we even go through seasons. Um, like I just had a baby. So Sarah's taken on a lot more responsibility in areas that I tended to take care of, but they still need to happen. Even, um, and I just wasn't able to commit as much time, but you have somebody to lean on and vice versa. So the value of, you know, always like being grateful for your person, always revisiting those conversations, I would say is, a, is probably the biggest one. So now we're, we bought a soup company, so a commercial kitchen. So we actually rent um, a community hall when we do our soup packaging days because we don't have a commercial kitchen yet, but that's gonna be another conversation. We became the Canadian um, distributors for Como grain mills. So they're like a home grain mill, which suits us selling the whole grains to get the freshest value of grain storage. So that first conversation that we had with what we wanted in our space, we need a lot more. So what, that, what does that look like? Is it gonna be on that farm? Is it gonna be our, our separate one? It just, it's that constant growth means that constant conversation. So what we agreed to at the beginning needs to continue to evolve. Excellent. I think you hit on two very, well, many very important things, but one is if you're choosing a partner, choose someone who's not identical to you. You want to get someone that supports your, what, you, what skills you have and brings other skills to the table. And the other thing is communication, communication, communication. It solves a lot of problems if it's brought forward first. And I know those conversations are difficult. Even in, you know, your conversation with your banker or whatever, yeah, go talk to them before they hunt you down because, believe me, it's a lot easier to have that conversation up front. We'll pass this back to Lindsay and we'll start all over again here. We've got another question for you. Lindsay, can you, you did a little bit, but can you delve a little deeper into the investment that it took to get going? What challenges did you have in terms of knowledge and setting up, you know, the cost of urban farming and everything else? There's a lot of us that have no idea what that's all about. Right. So we started with $1,000. I think you can kind of, whatever you have to invest. Um, being an urban farmer, you have to be creative. You have to be able to adapt to your environment um, and just understand how to grow in a small space. So we started, we were actually very fortunate. We had almost, uh, we've actually downsized in our space. We had over 2,000 square feet um, in this small old building <laughs> to start growing in. Uh, and we only had to pay $300 a month. So we were so lucky that we were able to find this space. Um, we, because we wanted to sell to grocery stores right away, uh, we were health inspected right away. Um, and I think that's really key with being an urban farmer because there are a lot of people growing in their, their basements right now. Um, you do have to keep in mind that you're selling to the public and when you're growing in your basement, you have animal hair, you have living, you, you, you can't necessarily be selling to public. Um, so I've always, from day one, made sure that our farm was separate. Um, and now we've, we are in a smaller space now, but our equipment is a lot. Um, we've, yeah, we've advanced our equipment by my, So I use these eight foot by four foot flood trays to uh, ebb and flow water my microgreens. Um, I monitor my humidity daily. I monitor my airflow because each space is different. So you're gonna have one area, maybe one, your, the space that you're growing in is really dry, so you're gonna to have to figure out, how do I get more moisture into this air? <laughs> like, it's almost like you're a scientist <laughs> in a way. So it's a little bit more techy when you're growing indoors, um, but it is a controlled environment. So once you get that sweet spot, you've got, you, you can grow as much as you can. So, yeah. Very good, very good. Shakira, we're going back to your social media stuff here. 
What mistakes do social media managers make? Um, I would say probably selling all the time. I, I think that um, it can be a bit off-putting when you go to a page and it's like, bye, 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 bye. And I think that, you know, when you give your pitch to somebody who is a social media, they think, well, you, you're, you're here and you're trying to sell to people. So this is all we should do all the time. But I, I think that there's opportunity to educate, to kind of like position yourself as like an expert in something. I remember I was asking you questions about, I think it was um, some grains. Anyway, it was one way an awesome program. But I think that it's important for you to kind of like educate your customers on what your products are and uh, the way to do that is to position yourself as an expert on something, whatever it is. It could be an ingredient component of your product, it could be a processing methodology that you apply. But I think that a lot of people go on social media and they try to just sell and sell and sell and sell. I think that for a lot of people that is not as interesting as just being a part of like your process and then deciding to buy. I totally agree with you, and I, I think it's really interesting when you said, yeah, I want to see how you start the tractor. I want to see how you get into the tractor. You know, like, those are things that a lot of people have no idea what to do, and it is quite interesting. There's a lot of things that we do that we think is just everyday old hat, not a problem, but it is really remarkable when you can show it through a different lens. Absolutely. Aaron, so they gave me these questions ahead of time, and I'm very grateful for this. What strategies and tips do you have for young women who are finding value-added options on their family farms? So it's interesting because you don't come from a farm background. And you don't come from Saskatchewan. So let us have it here. Persistence. <laughs> Good one. Um, yeah, honestly, I think it's if you, if you have an idea and you really feel like you're able to execute it, whether you need a partner or you can do it yourself or figuring those pieces out, it's that persistence. And I think the best example is actually on our farm of I wanted pigs. I really wanted pigs. I kept saying I wanted pigs, kept getting laughed at, still wanted pigs. And my mother-in-law, um, she, I think it was, it was two Christmases ago, she got me a How to Raise Pigs book and a Chickens for Dummies book. And I just looked at her and I was like, so I can get pigs. And she thought it was going to like dissuade me to be like, oh, you're not, you know, like, haha, read this. And I, I took that as a yes, <laughs> like that we can finally get pigs. Because I thought we're already selling our beef. We could do the pork side of it as well. And then it was also because we're a dairy farm and there's always, when you feed your calves, you've got the leftover milk from um, when they're on their... Um, like withdrawal period right after they calve. And so we had this excess milk and it was like, pigs. So then, <laughs> so I just kept saying pigs <laughs> and we got pigs. So we've, um, and so that persistence side I think is really big. And then of course I had to kind of prove that I was able to take care of them. So uh, I would not say that I've done it on my own. Uh, my husband's dad, he would feed them in the mornings cause I wasn't there to do morning chores. So he'd bring the milk then and then I do a lot of the other stuff. And you know, a lot of times when you come when you don't come from a farm background, part of it is you don't take, you know, if they say like you can't do it that way or, you know, it didn't work for us this way. I'm like, well, but what if it does this time? So that was the same with the pigs. Like I wanted electric fence because I didn't want them. I wanted them grazing. So I got the local co-op that was able to, I got all the food waste from them. Then we had the milk, and then I did electric fencing, and my husband was like, they're not going to stay in the fence. They're not going to stay in the fence, but they stay in the fence. <laughs> I don't, I mean, they didn't always stay in the fence, but it was just that <laughs> persistence of kind of showing <laughs> Christmas Day last year, they were like roaming free. But you just get a but pail of milk. But it was milk. Christmas. Yeah, I mean, yeah they Christmas. wanted to celebrate. But you get a pail of milk, and they'll just follow you right back into the fence, so it's like, it's fine. So as far as... I think persistence is probably the biggest one. And those ideas, I think they just, I know a lot of the times, you know, you look at, they're like, I think parents or that generation don't want to put in more work. And so when these ideas are coming, it's like, in their minds, it's like, we want to slow down. This is not going to let us slow down. Or I don't have time to add that extra piece to it. 
So it's really trying to prove that you're able to step up and be able to do the pieces that are there. And it's, you just, I don't know, in both Living Sky Farms, especially in Living Sky Farms, we just saw like, it was like, okay, yeah, you guys can do what you want. And now it's like, how can we help you do it? Because it's, we've just proved ourselves as we kept going. So that's what I got. Very and good. Saskatchewan is pretty great. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's grown on me. <laughs> good, 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 good. Success is getting up one more time than you fail, right? That's exactly what it is. So that's persistence. All right. I want to make sure that we have some time for questions at the end. So I want to jump into one, one more question here that, uh, that each one of you can answer. And we can start with you, Erin, and go back this way. If you were to give advice to your younger entrepreneurial self, what would it be? I think it's just to go before you're ready. I mean, our entire business came from, you know, we did build up some structures in the margins and things, but ultimately it was like, we bought a soup company. How do we make soup? We are great, like, our, our oats are different. How do we change this? We're now a distributor of a, a grain mill. And we have pigs. And, and there's pigs. Yeah, or like worms. Like, I was told to get into composting worms, so I just bought a yogurt container of worms, and now I've got like a couple bathtubs of them, and I'm like, they're still alive, so I'm doing something right. But it was like, jump in and just do it, even if you're not ready for it, because I think either you find the different support systems around you that are going to kind of either be like, oh, hey, I, yeah, I had worms, and la da 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 or hey, we've had the same problem with like flaking oats. Have you tried this? Do you want to do it in a different temperature? And then you can start learning from it. But if you don't start, then you never get those conversations. So start. Shakira, what do you tell your younger self? Everything she said. Um, and I, I would add that find mentorship. People are always willing and happy to share. The awesome program, this is not a plug, is incredible. I think they kind of taught us how to network and find a lot of incredibly amazing people. Whenever you have questions, DM people, message them. The worst thing they can say is no. And often, you're not going to hear a no. So network, network, and look for mentorship wherever you can find it. Um, for me, just like creating boundaries, like not, like for yourself, like so you're not working 20 hours a day. <laughs> like creating those boundaries, creating those boundaries with your customers, um, being confident in who you are and what your product is and valuing your labor and yourself in each product that you make. I think that's what I would tell myself because that's been a long journey. Cause, <laughs> and I think I'm at that point now, but through Be Awesome, through the mentorship, through meeting other female entrepreneurs, it's, it's really helped me. So, yeah. Very good advice. Very good advice. So now, if you have one thing that you want to tell this group that's out here, there are lots of people out here that can be mentors, they can be customers, they can be support people. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention to everybody out there is if you are in an entrepreneur or if you are, has a, have a friend that's an entrepreneur or if you know of someone who's an entrepreneur, and how can you support them? What are the things that you can do? So some of the things that uh, we started brainstorming about is, one, obviously, if you can afford it, buy their product. That's one of the, the best things that you can do to help these you know, these new entrepreneurs, these value-added processors out with. If you can't afford their product, you can afford to go online and leave an opinion. That helps a lot. Everybody knows now what social media can do, so follow them. Comment on their posts. Make, you know, share their posts. Those are things that you can do when, whenever, you know, it doesn't cost any money, it takes a little bit of time. The other thing that you can do is be their support. You know that they're working 20-hour days. Stop in and say, hey, can I bag this for the next couple hours and you can get a, you know, another hour of sleep or something? Can I, you know, can I help you out? Do you have skills in something? Like maybe you are fantastic at, uh, at design and you're going, you take a look at their design and you go, you know, it would be a little bit better if you did this. And, and offer that support because what most of these gals are going to find is that 
they get in with one idea and they're not the expert in everything. Just as you're not the expert in production, in social media, in marketing, in finance, in all of that. So any skills that you have to offer, please do that. So one thing that you want to go home and remember about all of these fantastic panelists is? Um, I guess my biggest thing is that I am Indigenous owned and mental health um, conscious. So. That's what I started my business on, and that's what I want to continue to educate people. A product at West African Inspired, bought here for everyone, so when you get a chance, it might be super spicy, but still do try. <laughs> Wholesome, homegrown, and homemade. That's everything that we try to do in terms of our business and the growth. We want to stick to that basic three things. Thank you. So now, are there questions out in the audience? We've got three people out there that will be happy to answer questions. And do we have a microphone that can come? Or if you're just good and loud enough, just holler it out and we'll repeat the question up for everybody to hear. Hi. <laughs> My question is, how do you find the, not power, but the confidence to work your way up within a family business that's prominently done by males. I struggle with that with my family business and I wanna know like how to be taken seriously even if you don't know exactly everything to be done within the business. Erin, you got the mic, you start. That is a tough one because it's <laughs> very dependent on the type of men you have in your family. Um, I think a lot of it is that almost that proving that we can do it. And I know that that is hard if you don't have the opportunity to do that. And so I would always think of the little ways that I can do it. So coming from not farming and then coming into it, the dairy farm, because I can't speak as much on the grain side of it. That's more Sarah's story. Um, but on that end of it, it was like, I wanted, I needed to prove that I wanted to be there. And so it was showing up for the regular things. So showing up and doing the chores that I knew needed to be done. Because if I wanted to start selling something else off the farm, it's like the chores need to be done every day. So if I'm not willing to put in those basic daily things, why do I get the opportunity to do this like next one? So that would be my biggest one is just those daily pieces. and it, I never felt like I was, like I always was nervous that I wasn't giving enough. Um, and then I remember my mother-in-law's speech at our wedding and it was like, okay. It was, it was an opportunity that I got to hear that, you know, I was kind of, I was accepted into that world. And I do believe it was those daily things that it showed that I was, I was there and I was wanting to build that business forward, even if it was in a different way than theirs. Uh, I, I would agree with what Aaron is saying, is that you have to put in, like, like she said, you, you have to walk the talk and be a part of their business to show that, that you're involved in their business, they can be involved in you. They, they need to trust you. They need to see that you, can, you will do what you're going to say you're going to do. Um, it's interesting because talking about partners, we've been in the industry where there's a lot of people go, oh, we want to partner with you, we want to do this, we want to do that, and everything else. And they come in with all these marvelous ideas, and then they, they, you never see them again. And it's because, and then the ones that come in and say, I want to partner with you, I'm going to come in tomorrow, we're going to start doing this, this is what we're going to do. It's walking the talk and, and just proving yourself, just what Aaron said, and you're, you're, you become part of the entire process, not just your own part of it. So we all know that there's difficulties with starting things. Um, for you guys, or girls, Yes, um, for you girls, what do you feel like was your most difficult reality that you were like banging your head against from the beginning? And do you find that that's lightened or changed? And what did you need to do to move through that or get out of that or get past it? For me, starting this microgreen farm four years ago when there wasn't a lot of knowledge about what they were, um, I think... I just kept 
kept at it and people think I was crazy <laughs> and they kept being like, microgreens? What are you doing? And I was like, no, it'll be a thing. I, I, you'll see, like, one day. And so I just, I think keeping that persistence, like anything, I've always been a very persistent person and I always have to be busy. So I used to work on an organic vegetable farm and I was putting in hours into somebody else's dream. So then I thought, why am I doing this? I have so much power here put into my own dream. And it's hard work because there's been days, like daily, that I'm like, why am I doing this? I should give up. I, I, I don't know. But I'm very fortunate to have a very healthy support system that's like, no, you're awesome. Keep going. Like, it, failure isn't, doesn't define us. Like, it, it actually projects me forward because I'm like, oh, I've done that. I don't know. You just keep going. You just keep going forward. I don't know if that answers. So I, I think the um, best thing, I'm a procrastinator by nature. So I think the biggest thing for me to do personally is to make my goals super actionable. So if I have a particular goal, I write it down in a journal and I put highlighter and I highlight it and then I put a date that I want to get it done. And I find that, you know, having a system where I can visually see that this is what I want to do by this day, instead of just saying, in three years, I want to have a farm that is this size. It's like, what can I do this week and then next week and in a month? And it's easier for me when I break my goals down into like smaller bits and then I put dates to them and I put them somewhere where I can physically see because shame is a good motivator. If, you know, it's been three weeks, you haven't done it, and then you're like, eh, I, I better get it done. So that, I find that really helpful. I think time management. Um, when we started this, it was, yeah, side hustle. We always said that. Um, and it's starting to be not as much of a side hustle, but that means trying to shift all the other pieces of our worlds. So that, that part of it, you know, at the beginning, it was easy to just be like, it's okay, it's a side hustle. It's, it's harvest season, so you're not gonna see us on social media as much and we're comfortable with that. But once you start getting to another level, you actually have an audience that has a little bit more of an expectation from us. And it, that's probably been one of the biggest challenges that I think will constantly be, but it's what are we going to maybe have to let go of to focus more on this? Or are we just gonna focus more on like a, a localized community piece of it for the moment? It's all those questions that they're constantly nagging and they're constantly there and it's not easy to find those answers because you don't have the time. And especially if you love all the other pieces or family, all the other commitments you have, that would be, that would be the challenge of it. But I think it's just constantly a, acknowledging it. I think that's such a big one, especially with your partner. Like Sarah and I, we've gone through crazy seasons, like everything from, you know, she's got three kids. so kids in COVID, it was like no school, right? So there was a lot of times where it was like, okay, today we're gonna do this, but then the kids had to be home from school, so then you've gotta rearrange that. And then for me, it was like, um, I guess silage season or whatever, I'd be in the barn a lot more. So it's just always trying to find those things, but always just being realistic with your time. For me, it just helped not have the guilt of it. So if I had to push an assignment off, even though, just like you say, it's like shame, we were supposed to be done. I felt like I understood why, and so I was able to re-evaluate that part of it. I'm sorry. I'm just a, maybe a couple of men in this room, so I, I asked, just in her ear, I just whispered that, can you ask this question? And, and she, she just put me on the spot, but anyway. I'm Abdul Jaleel with Prairies Economic Development Canada. And my question is, when you are establish your business, how do you set the price? Because you want your product to move. At the same time, you want to make profit because you're spending so much time. How do you, what criteria do you use to set the price? Great question. Yeah, that is a good question. For, for us, the biggest thing was, um, and the awesome program actually opened our eyes to the big box retail dynamic versus us doing it direct because that really changes what you can do for your price point. But we just decided where we were comfortable with our, our cost or what we wanted to make as a profit. 
and we did a lot of research into other businesses to see where we were aligned. But we wanted to make good food available to the regular everyday household family. And so there's a lot of people who say that's wrong because we're not showing our value, so to speak, because if it's too low, then people won't buy it. If it's too high, people won't buy it. We're just like, this is what we would pay for good food. We're happy with our margins. We hope other people will also join, like understand that, and we'll be transparent with our customers if they ask those questions. Yeah, so I would say that, you know, it's a cost plus strategy. Uh, there are a lot of added costs when it goes to going into retail and distributors and all of that. So if you know that that's where you want to be, you want to make sure that you factor in all of those costs and then you factor in your profit. Um, yeah, and like we talked about earlier, we really don't make money, so. <laughs> yeah, costing was a huge hurdle for me um, because I wanted to give everyone free microgreens, like, but um, it's something I've learned and um, Be Awesome was really helpful for me to understand my costing, um, to value myself, because I wasn't valuing my labor that I was putting into everything. Um, we chose to be more middle of the line. We're not, we're premium product, but we're not selling our microgreens too high. We're kind of in the middle because I also value everyone eating um, wholesome products that are homegrown, locally sourced. So, yeah, that's how we went with ours, too. There. I think our time is up. I think we've had an enjoyable uh, hour and a half. Thank you. The Awesome Program is an initiative of the Saskatchewan Food Centre and is funded by Prairie's Economic Development Canada through the Women Entrepreneurship Strategy Ecosystem Fund. We are here to support women-owned food businesses through education, advising, and industry connections. Although we are based in Saskatoon, we serve members in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. For more information, visit the show notes or head to our website at beawesome.ca.